0: Welcome to Coach House Talks. Welcome to the Coach House Church. Thank you for joining us this morning. We are on our journey through Acts. We are continuing our way through. We've reached towards the culmination of the book. uh, And at the end, we find uh, three trials that Paul finds himself on. And we're going to put those together. We're going to actually look at them as one group rather than look at each chapter individually. So we're going to look at three trials, three lots of accusations, and more importantly three three professions of no guilt. Before I do that, I just want to look at a quote by um, a literary giant of the English language, Samuel Johnson. He's responsible for actually writing one of the first English dictionaries in 1755. He's a well-known poet and Christian. And uh, a conversation is recorded in which the Solicitor General for Scotland stated to him that truth will always bear an examination. Johnson's reply, as recorded by his biographer, James Boswell, was, Well, yes, sir, but it is painful to be forced to defend it. Consider, sir, how you would like to be tried before a jury for a capital crime once a week. I think from this we can kind of get a sense of flavour of what Paul maybe was going through. He was kept in prison for two years by the then governess of Caesarea Felix. Um, and remember, if you remember from our previous discussions, Caesarea is where the Roman headquarters in the region was placed. And in almost daily conversation for that two years uh, with Felix, Paul would protest his innocence, would just stand for the truth but he got no nearer a trial or a decision. He was eventually passed on to Festus and then to King Agrippa, who we are reminded was persuaded by Paul's arguments to such a degree that he almost became a Christian. The same accusations, the same lack of evidence, the same pronouncement of no guilt, and the same disregard for integrity and fairness in each of the cases we would find if we looked in scripture, in fact, we'll just point our way through this. So in Acts 24 and verse 22, we have Felix uh, saying, at that point, Felix, who was quite familiar with the way, which is the following of Jesus, adjourned the, ju- the hearing and said, wait until Lysias, the garrison commander arrives, then I will decide the case. In other words, he's struggling to find anything that is uh, that he can pin to Paul. And when Paul appears before Festus in Acts 25, verse 18, Festus says, but the accusations made against him weren't any of the crimes that I expected. So whatever Paul is being faced with, whatever place um, accusations Paul's been brought before the governors with, they find no basis for guilt in him. And then finally, in Acts 26, Verse 30, we're talking about King Agrippa here. And he says that, it says in verse 8, then the king, the governor, Benicio, his wife and all the others stood and left. And as they went out and talked it over, they agreed this man hasn't done anything to deserve death or imprisonment. And then Agrippa goes further and says to Festus, he could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. So what we find here is Paul languishing in prison for crimes that he can't be tried for, for accusations that there is no basis for, and yet he remains in custody and locked away. And in Acts 24, it tells us that actually Felix almost counted with him on a daily basis. So Felix procrastinated for two years. Festus, when he comes along, he acts quickly, but he still doesn't know what to do, as Paul asks finally to be tried by Caesar in Rome. King Agrippa comes along, he gets involved, again finds no fault, but seizing on the escape route given by Paul hands him off to face the trial he wants before Caesar. And all of this is contained in chapters 24, 25 and 26 of Acts, which I would ask you to read through for yourselves as we come closer to the end of our journey through this particular book. So I want to lump these trials together and ask a question. Why did Luke include such a legal account at the end of his book? Stretching across three trials, three accusations and three verdicts of no guilt. Now, we know that Paul would be destined for a trial in Rome, or we knew that he would be destined to arrive in Rome, certainly, because Paul already knew this. God had already told him. God had already revealed that truth to him. So when God gives you a destination, when you know that God has given you something in your life, you better believe that that is where you will end up, because it was the basis of Paul's understanding. It didn't matter that he was stuck in a jail for two years with Felix or that he was then tried by Festus, or that he was then tried by Agrippa. What Paul knew and understood deep down was that God had told him that he would arrive in Rome, and therefore he would arrive in Rome. He wasn't too bothered about the the way the journey panned out. He knew the destination. So, just as a Sunday morning pickup, just to encourage our hearts, let's just read some words that Paul wrote in the book of Romans. And Paul writes these exciting verses because, and I want us to sense the commitment that he's finding and feeling in his heart as he he writes these words. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all of these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ, who loves us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amazing words written by Paul, even though he's gone through all of the hardships that we know of and we are aware of that he went through. I was singing a worship song yesterday on the um, School of Ministry, which we continue to do online. And as we were singing this song, I was reminded that all God's promises are yes and amen. And I mean, no doubt that Paul's faith was built upon the truth of his revelation from Jesus himself and the eyewitness accounts of the apostles, which we have written down for us throughout the book of Acts. It's their eyewitness testimony which gives Paul this faith, this understanding of what the truth is. And it never changes. And in two in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it, it says that um, for all God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ, our amen, which means yes ascends to god for his glory so in jesus all of the promises god has ever set out for mankind were preserved and fulfilled and acted out on by jesus he was the culmination of all god's promises What I find invigorating in Luke's account of Paul's trials is that through them all, Paul just keeps on with the gospel. Especially the proclamation that the resurrection is absolutely sure, true, and that it happened to Jesus, just as it will for all believers. And faith this strong is born out of promise. Our faith is in the promises we have in Scripture, backed up by the understanding of God's character which is revealed there, the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the witness of the Holy Spirit within us, in our very being. Our faith is not without substance. We have a faith which is steadfast and sure, the same faith that kept the apostles even to death. This is the same faith we have born out of the promises of God and bought for us in the death and the rising back to life of Jesus, our advocate and saviour. So back to our passages. Why did Felix keep Paul in prison for two years? Well, it seems that Felix, as we discovered last week, was a conniving individual, happy to be bribed. In fact, it says that he was hoping that Paul would bribe him uh, to gain his freedom. And generally... He kept peace by trying to be all things to all men. Now, actually, people who try and be all things to all men don't often succeed in anything they try. It suited Felix to keep Paul in chains in order to pacify the Jews of obeying for his blood, if you remember. He probably wanted to use Paul as a political tool, to his advantage, but he didn't really know how to deal with the accusations and cries for Paul's death. He was out of his depth. So keeping Paul in prison seemed like the easiest course of action. It means that I actually don't have to make a decision that I would be answerable for. So you could say that he was using Paul for his own agenda. And as we came to the end of Acts 24 last week, we find that Felix was succeeded by Festus. So Festus becomes the new governor. And as he becomes the new governor, he realizes that he's been handed a bit of a problem. Because he's been handed Paul, and as you read chapter twenty-five, you'll see that at least Festus tried to deal with the problem before him. In within a matter of days, he'd already decided to travel to Jerusalem to look at the accusations that had been brought about by the by the Jewish High Council. So he went to see them to find out what they what they wanted to say. He showed a little bit of wisdom in not allowing Paul to travel with him in the first place, which was a good job as the Jewish leaders and the leading priests and the other leaders, they were planning to ambush Paul and kill him on the way. Just, I mean, just think about this for a second. This isn't just about anybody that's planning to kill Paul. This is the leading leaders, the Jewish leading priests and other leaders were planning to get rid of this troublemaker. Festus then shows his indecisions by asking Paul if he would like to be tried in Jerusalem. So he brings the, the the accusers from Jerusalem, he brings them to Caesarea, starts having a trial, and basically, well, he just says to Paul, do you want to go to Jerusalem to face trial? Well, why would Paul do that? No, he says, of course not. I will be tried by Caesar as a Roman citizen. Take me to Rome. He knew that he was not going to get a fair trial in Jerusalem, even if he got to Jerusalem for a trial. He knew that his life was at risk. So all these chapters and descriptions of the trial serve a number of purposes. It is possible that in Acts 20, or given that in Acts 21, Luke reveals who he's writing the account in Acts 4, and also his Gospel uh, of Luke. They're both written to this mysterious figure for Theophilus who many commentators believe was a Roman official. Now, this would make good sense, given the extended argument for a fair trial in Rome. It's almost as if Luke is given as a legal document designed to offer proof of Paul's innocence and credentials. A defense lawyer's brief, if you like. So it was written to a Roman official. This is an account of everything that has happened from Jesus' ascension all the way through dealing with all of the eyewitness accounts of the apostles, then handed off to Paul, where Paul reached Jesus on the road to Damascus, all the way through Paul's life until he ends up eventually in Rome. All of this captured and written down for us in this book of Acts, which was written specifically to, to Theophilus. I think perhaps that Luke had another goal in mind as he writes these chapters, however. That's probably why he wrote them but there's other things as well Luke writes in many many different layers three trials three accusations three cries of no guilt I think Luke wants us to sense a feeling or certainly for the readers of the time a feeling of we've been here before deja vu perhaps what does this remind us of this all seems familiar somehow Think closely about how the readers at the time would perceive the information before them. What would they be reminded of? In Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, we find that Luke writes this description. Then the entire council took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. They began to state their case. This man has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes to the Roman government and by claiming that he is the Messiah, a king. Pilate turned to the leading priest and to the crowd and said, I find nothing wrong with this man. And then later it comes to, comes to, uh, to light that, that Jesus is a Galilean. So Pilate seizes on this. Oh, so he's a Galilean, Pilate asked. When they said that he was, Pilate sent him to Herod, Antipas, because Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction. And Herod just happened to be in Jerusalem at that time. Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he'd heard about him and had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. He asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus refused to answer. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the school- teachers of religious law stood there shouting their accusations. Then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus and finally they put a royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. There was no grounds for the accusations. Herod could find nothing wrong. And it even tells us that Herod and Pilate had been enemies before, became friends that day. And later it says, then Pilate called together the leading priests and other religious leaders along with the people and he announced his verdict. You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I have examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence and find him innocent. Examined him thoroughly and found him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion and has sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. So I will have him flogged and then I will release him. Now we know obviously that that didn't end there and that the the Jewish kept the Jews kept shouting for for Jesus to be crucified and eventually that's what happened to him but on the trials there was no guilt found in the man in the three trials that Jesus just had now I've said before that Luke's often tried to draw us to, in to see the parallels and the, the subtle or maybe not so subtle undertones of his writings using comparisons to make a bigger point, contrasting stories and behaviours so that we see the justice and the injustice. Remember Barnabas, how well he gave gifts, followed by the story where gifts were withheld. Lots of parallels in the story or in the stories in Acts. So Luke is trying to draw out these comparisons. And in these stark chapters of Paul's trials, we find this huge comparison between Paul and Jesus, both unjustly put on trial and both found without guilt by those in charge. And yet, God had and has a bigger story and a larger canvas in which this story has been unfolded and presented to us. Jesus had to die and he had to be resurrected for all mankind. But he came firstly. To the Jewish people, and Paul had to go to Rome, the Gentile center, the seat of world power at the time, and he had to go there to present the Gospel for all of us. We'll find that it's in Rome that Paul finally declares that the Gospel and the promises God of God are going out to the Gentile world; they have been rejected by the Jews who Jesus came to, and who Paul first started speaking to as well, and the, and the and the apostles in Acts. And you'll find as we travel through Acts, you'll find that what Jesus said would happen has happened. Starts in Jerusalem, then into Samaria, and so into Judea and the ends of the earth. But that's not only in terms of land and, and country, that's to do with the inhabitants of those countries as well. Started in Jerusalem, it was almost entirely a Jewish audience, but as it ripples out, we find that actually the bigger picture is that the gospel was for all mankind, Jew and Gentile. The trials also focus on the primary reason for our hope and assurance. Paul majors in all the time on the resurrection of Jesus. It becomes the underpinning of Jesus' argument. In fact, we'll find in Acts 25 that Festus, when he was putting on trial, when he was listening to the words he was saying, had this to say. He said, he didn't judge him on any of the crimes that he expected to judge him on. He didn't talk about them. And he says in verse 19, instead, it was something about their religion and a dead man named Jesus, who Paul insists is alive. The very core of very, the argument, that the, the very core of what Paul is trying to say and draw our attention to and bring it round to this point all the time, is that Jesus' resurrection is so important. It's important and central to our thinking. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes it clear why the resurrection is so important to us. He says this, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection from the dead. And if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anybody in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all those who have died. Paul's been given huge opportunities to proclaim the good news of Jesus in these last few chapters. We've found that he's had opportunities to speak to the, in Jerusalem, to the crowds, to the ruling council in Jerusalem, to the governor Felix, then to the governor Festus, and then to King Agrippa. And guess what? The stories remain the same. It's never changed. Paul never wavers in his convictions. His story is consistent, constant, and true. Even in the face of huge pressure and faith-sapping rejection and injustice, Paul's story remains the same. Prison didn't wear him down. The years didn't wear him down. He remained a strong, faithful witness to the facts of Jesus' death and resurrection and the hope he brings to all who believe in him. Read the chapters for yourself and let the testimony of Paul persuade you that all life is in preparation for a life to come. And then let's ask ourselves this, how well do we stand up in our testifying of Jesus' saving grace in our lives? Do we buckle under pressure? Do we stand strong? I'm sure for us it's a mixture of these. But in these days, in these last days, we need to be encouraged to stand, to be prepared to be counted amongst the number. These days do feel like we're close to the end of time. But whatever the signs of those times, none of us are promised tomorrow in this life. So we have to live today as though it's our last day. We have an eternal hope in an eternal heaven with God. Like Paul understood, in this world we are only passing through. So let's stay strong. Let's encourage one another to be proud witnesses of Jesus' saving power. And in the face of all things, let's be constant and consistent with our view that Jesus died and was resurrected. And we have a hope that is steadfast and sure. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and at www.coachhousechurch.org.